That's pretty good when you're so excited about junior church, you lose a shoe on the way out. So. <laughs> that was pretty impressive. All right, well, it's Mother's Day. I'm not going to preach a Mother's Day sermon. However, I want to use this occasion to preach something that's been on my heart for quite a while, and this is a, this is a great opportunity to, to preach. Um, I want to preach a sermon entitled, Another Faithful Generation. And uh, we will get to a scripture, but it's going to be a while. I want you just to listen to uh, the, the very beginning. And I'm going to run through scripture and kind of do a mini biblical theology as we, as we get going and uh, thinking about the word of God. Uh, one of the things that we know about God is that he wants his name glorified in every corner of the world, doesn't he? Beginning with the command in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful, multiply. He told man that. And the idea was that man, being in a sinless state, would be fruitful, multiply in the name of God. The glory of God would be spread throughout the whole planet. That, that command, be fruitful, multiply, is found over eight different times in the book of Genesis alone. Many more times in the rest of the Old Testament. But we know the story, don't we? Man did not continue in a sinless state, but rather he rebelled against God. He sinned against God, right? And so once man sinned, things went downhill quickly. I mean, it wasn't a downhill slide. It was basically a cliff they dropped off of. And so by the time you get just a few chapters into Genesis, you find that the Bible says that the, every intent of the thought of man's heart was evil continually. That's how evil man was. As a matter of fact, there was only one righteous family in the whole world. Can you imagine that? One righteous family, Noah. And so God flooded the earth, uh, killed off the wicked, restarted. When, when Noah walked off the ark with his family, do you remember what God told him? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so now we have the second chance that uh, God gave man to spread his glory throughout the whole world. But they didn't. They, they gathered in the plain of Shinar. Remember that? The plain of Shinar, and they built a tower at a, at a location called Babel. The idea was it was going to reach into the heavens. In other words, we were going to become as important to God as God is. We were going to be like God. That's always sinful man's um, goal. They want to become like God. So what did God do? He confounded their language. And that sent them all over the world. But the problem was they didn't send God's glory over the whole world, did they? Matter of fact, the gospel was lost to most of the world. As a result, just the next chapter, you see that God came down to a place in, called Ur of the Chaldees, spoke to an idolater, a worshiper of false gods, a worshiper of idols, and his name was Abram. And he called him out of Ur and called him to a promised land. And he told him that I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so all of a sudden we have this be fruitful, multiply idea coming back, don't we? I'm going to make a great nation, a nation of people who know you. As a matter of fact, he later told Abraham's son Jacob this specific promise. He said, behold, I will make you fruitful, multiply you. There's that fruitful multiply, isn't it? Now from the children of Abraham, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring for you an everlasting possession. Everlasting possession, just a wonderful promise, right? Well, we go another 400 years. 400 years, the descendants of Jacob, they find themselves in Egypt, and it seems like that promise is going to be fulfilled because seven verses in to the book of Exodus, it said, the Bible says this, the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly and multiplied. There's fruitful and multiplied together in that verse, right? The command that God was asking for. And they grew exceedingly strong so that the, the land was filled with them. And so we have fruitful and multiply, and we've got this people that God's called. And so he calls them out of Egypt in this great act of salvation, the gospel 
of, of Egypt, if you want to call it that. It's, it's, it's the good news of them being called out of slavery in Egypt. And they, they go into the promised land. And, and did, they, did they fulfill the potential that God had for them? They didn't, did they? Matter of fact, they, they failed miserably. And so we, we had the sordid story of the book of Judges, right? All those nasty stories in there, what man can do to one another. And, and then uh, they have a king, and, and then the, king, the kingdom is divided, and then they go into exile. And it seems like the promise is just not going to happen, Right? What is this promise that you gave us, God? Because we're all over the world. We're not in this promised land. And then we have this little promise in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet, he's, he's wrote Lamentations, and, and he's the prophet uh, with the, uh, during the exilic period. And here's a promise in Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant. With the house of David, or I'm sorry, with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. And so God gave, gave this, this promise. He said, look, I'm going I'm to make this new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Jacob. That's the northern and southern kingdoms, in case you didn't know what that was. And he goes on talking about it. And then he says this three verses later. He says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Now, the word know here, it's not talking about, well, I know who God is. It's know. It's a relationship. It's like you know your wife or you know your husband. It's an intimate relationship. So here's this promise that they're going to have this intimate knowledge relationship. And not only that, are they going to know God intimately, but they are not going to have their sin remembered anymore. Remember my email a couple weeks ago? I know you don't, so I'm just going to remind you. I sent it out and I said, what does the word remember mean? When God remembers something, it means he acts upon what he knows is true. And so you want him to remember your prayer, but you don't want him to remember your sin. And so when God forgets, he doesn't literally forget. What it means is he is not acting upon that sin or whatever it is. He's not acting upon what he knows. And so this great new covenant says that these people will know God and know him intimately and their sin will be forgiven. Well, when did that happen or has it happened? Has there been a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob? The answer is yes or has. Fast forward to the days of Jesus. One night, during the Passover meal, Jesus is breaking bread with them, and he says this. And after they did it, he said, This cup that is poured out for you is what? The new covenant. The new covenant that Jeremiah wrote about. The new covenant in my blood. And so now this new covenant is not from the blood of lambs and goats. This new covenant is from the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the question then is this. If this new covenant is there, who is the house of Israel and the house of Judah? Who? Well, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let Paul answer that. He does a much better job than I do. He says in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There it is. Anybody who is in Christ is now the house of Judah and the house of Israel. We are the children of promise. The children of Abraham are the children of promise, the true children of Abraham. And so God still desires, going all the way back to what I said at the very beginning, God still desires to spread His glory throughout the world. And He is calling His people. And more and more are becoming children of the promise. And so the house of Israel and the house of Judah they, and, and then the offspring of, of Abraham, as God said, will, will be as a number of sand on the seashore, and it's happening today, and it's true. I want to I add a little, another little aspect of it here, and that is found in Ezekiel. 
You remember Ezekiel 40 to 48, Ezekiel's temple, the description there? Do you understand that description? If you do, come, come tell me about it, okay? I understand parts of it. But in, the, in that description, in chapter number 47, you have this, this wonderful description of the temple. And in chapter 47, Ezekiel sees a vision of a little trickle of water coming out from the threshold of the temple. You remember that? And uh, Ezekiel walks a little ways, and it's ankle deep. And he walks a little ways, and it's knee deep. And he walks a little ways longer, and it's waist deep. You remember? And finally, he walks a little further, and it's a great torrent that he cannot, no man can cross. And it's coming out of the temple, which is the throne of God. Right? That's where God is seated. Right? Do you understand what that is? Do you understand the interpretation of that? What is that symbolizing? Well, again, Jesus gave the answer. In, in, in uh, John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you remember what happened to the river of water in Ezekiel? Everything it touched did what? Came to life. The Dead Sea came alive. There was, there was fruit trees and there were all sorts of stuff, all sorts of life. And Jesus said, if anyone believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water and you might ask yourself how is that the answer to what Ezekiel is talking about well it's found in the very next verse verse number 39 now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified rivers of living water symbolizes the Holy Spirit who comes from God who gives life to dead souls isn't that wonderful? Now, how does this tie in with Ezekiel chapter 47? Well, do you remember Jesus ascended to heaven and he told his disciples to go back and pray in Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, on the day of Pentecost, they're praying and the Holy Spirit rushes in like a rushing mighty wind and makes all sorts of noise. And remember, this is Pentecost, and most likely there were people there also celebrating the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And so there's, there's thousands of people there, and where are they from? They're from Parthia, they're from Mede, they're from Elam, they're from f the Fertile Crescent, they're from Asia, they're from Egypt, Rome, and many other places. And they're gathered, and the only place that they can gather in Judea is the Temple Mount. That's Roman law for the vicinity that they're in. No gatherings of Jewish men of more than 10 could gather anywhere but on the Temple Mount where the Roman guards have their chariots on top of the walls of the temple and they can get to any kind of riot very quickly. And so here's all these Jewish people from all over the world there wondering what that noise is. And Peter stands up on, on that mount and he preaches that sermon on Pentecost and what is the result according to the Bible? 3,000 souls are saved. And where are these souls from? They're from all over. And they left there. And what would they have done? They would have gone home to their families and they would have preached that same gospel of Jesus Christ to their families. And more and more souls are converted. And it was to such a degree in the, in the book of Acts that when Paul was in one place, they said, these are the men who have turned the world upside down. And the Roman Empire was turned upside down. Within 300 years, it went from complete antagonism to, they called it the Holy Roman Empire, didn't they? Complete change. And so, follow me. These believers started in Jerusalem. They had the rivers, a river of living water inside of them, the Holy Spirit. They go out through the whole world. And that little trickle of 3,000 souls became a mighty rushing torrent, and it has not stopped to this day. That's the interpretation of it. 
Let me add this. This is free, by the way. You want to know Revelation 22? There's a river of living water coming out from the throne of God. And guess what it does? It makes life. You want to know the interpretation of that? John tells us in his gospel, it's the Holy Spirit. The interpretation, John wrote the gospel, John wrote Revelation. If the Holy Spirit, if it's the Holy Spirit in the gospel of John, guess what that river of living water is in Revelation 22? It's the Holy Spirit. How, think about this. There's this tree. What in the world is this tree that bears fruit in its season? What are we commanded to do? We're commanded to bear spiritual fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. And if we go back to the Psalms, we find out that if we're in the Word of God, we're like a tree planted by the rivers of what? Living water, bearing fruit in its season. Do you see how easy it is to take this apocalyptic literature, compare it with the rest of the Bible, and, and you understand what it is? Now, there's a lot of other things I don't understand, right? But that much I do. That's free. But let's get back to our message here. God desires, I'm going to say it one more time, God desires that his glory spreads throughout the world. And that glory is spread how? It is spread through the conversion of lost souls. It's spread by men coming from darkness into light, from being deaf to hearing, from dead to alive, from in darkness into light, from the realm of death to the realm of life, and God is glorified as more and more people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that is why we have this commission. All authority is given on heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of all kinds of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so when you come into Christ, when you get saved, when you become a living creature, one of the first things that we learn is to obey Christ as Lord, right? Very important. And we're commissioned, literally, think about the impact of this. We are commissioned to spread the glory of God through the whole world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the glory of God. That's a daunting task. How many of you get just a little bit nervous before you talk to somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most people do. The vast majority of the people do. But I tell you what, if you're anything like me, whether or not they accept Christ as their Savior, I'm, I'm on cloud nine because I just got to share the gospel. And we're spreading His glory. That is the most important commission that we could be involved in. It's all through the Bible. Let me give you one example from the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, okay, so that we who were first to hope in Christ, there it is, that's salvation, hope in Christ might be to what? The praise of His glory. How does God get glory? When we turn from darkness to life, when we get saved. That's God's desire. By the way, that was an Old Testament desire too. Think of, It's all over the Old Testament. Let me give you one. Declares glory among the nations as marvelous works among all the peoples. There it is. Declare God's glory. Declare salvation to all the peoples in all the world. God wants His glory everywhere. We are not to shrink back from calling people from every religion, every nation and ethnicity to ascribe glory to the living God. Paul takes one dense passage and makes this true. And he goes all over the Bible and pulls it all together. In Romans 15, he says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might what? Glorify God for His mercy. There's that glory of God and then he starts drawing in these Old Testament passages. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And then Paul goes, And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, 
with his people. He wasn't finished there. He said, and again, praise God, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And he couldn't help himself. He keeps going. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles in him. The Gentiles will hope. And then he finishes by saying, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit in you may abound in hope. Praise the Lord, right? Wonderful doxology. And he's drawing from Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah, and he just piled all these up to support what? To support the coming of, of Jesus as Messiah for all nations so that the whole world will see the glory of God. That's our commission. That's the highest commission there is. I don't care if you're general so and general nonsense, four-star general in the army. You don't have a greater commission than to spread the glory of God all over the earth. I don't care if you're the CEO of the Acme Corporation or whatever. You, your greatest commission is to spread the glory of God through the whole earth by giving His name out in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a daunting task, isn't it? But we have a promise that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it's nerve-wracking. Have you ever talked to people and it not you feel it didn't go well with them? And you told them the glory. And so you're, you're a little bit nervous. So here's a question I have for you. Where is the easiest place to start giving the gospel to other people? Exactly. The family. Family. Parents, grandparents, the most effective area, effective, did you hear this word? The most effective area of evangelism that you have is in the home. And listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. This is so important. If you do not take pains to diligently pass your faith to your children, the results will be devastating. And that is no exaggeration. If you do not diligently take pains to pass your faith to your children, you will see devastation, no doubt. We have proof of this. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter number 6. And we're going to dive into Scripture now. Deuteronomy chapter number 6. This was the failure of Israel. Deuteronomy 6, very famous passage of Scripture. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. The whole chapter is important. I'm not going to talk about the introductory portion. I'm going to jump to the Shema, the famous part of it, beginning in verse number 4, where he says this, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes and uh, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These verses, listen, parents, grandparents, these verses give the most effective way to evangelize in the most effective context. Hands down, no more effective way to evangelize in the most effective arena than in the home. So how do we pass our faith to our children? Well, here it is, ready? Number one, God said, love God with all your heart. Now that sounds so basic, doesn't it? Love God with all your heart. But what is the heart? I talked about this in the men's Bible study yesterday. The heart is the very core of who you are. We in the West think of it as emotions. It's not emotions. When the Bible uses the word heart, it's the real you. It's the, the center of all your desires and all your dreams and all your goals and everything that you're living for in your life. That's your heart. It's the real you. And so we are to love God wholeheartedly. 
It says, love God down to the very core of who you are. Love God with your heart and every part of your being. And if you do that, that is the massive, giant first step of evangelism in your home. If you do not love God with all your heart, your evangelism right now is already negatively affected. So how do you know that you love God with your heart? Kind of a difficult question, isn't it? How do you know that? Well, you examine what you think about. You examine what you dream about. You, what are your goals and your desires? What are your most intense goals and desires? Examine what animates you. What gets you really excited? And if those things are not God, then you don't love God with all your heart. Sobering, isn't it? I would say the close examination of our hearts <laughs> is a very, pro- very scary prospect for most of us, isn't it? Why is that? It's that way because, yes, we are in Christ, but what is the constant temptation of our hearts? To be just like Israel. You know, Israel served God, but they also served all the other gods as well. And it was God and and that's been the temptation of God's people for, for all of time. And it can't be God and. It's only God. Yeah, sure, we have some desires. We have some dreams. But they can't rise to the level of our desire and dreams for God. God wants us, well, yeah, God wants us to love Him so much that there is no competition There's no room in our hearts for any other idolatrous desire. We don't have adulterous relationships in our hearts with our relationship with God. We don't have adulterous hearts in our relationship with God. We can't. We can't afford to. We can't afford it at all. Don't be. Listen, dear parent, grandparent, don't be like what God's analysis of the Israelites were in Isaiah where he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. Don't let it be said of you. Let's get your life right now. Love is a choice. The Bible teaches us that love is a choice. Choose today, if it's not true, to love God with all of your heart. And if you do that, parents and grandparents, It's a major first step towards evangelizing your household. There's another thing. Number two, diligently impress the gospel into the children's hearts. Diligently impress the gospel into their hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. We are to inscribe the Word of God into their thinking with indelible sharpness and precision. It's... it's, it's, careful work it's precise work every child is different here's the image you ready the image given here is somebody who is a an artisan who has a block of granite or marble and he takes the chisel and he takes his tools and he carefully and intricately begins to impress an image and to carve out an image on that marble block That is what we are to do with our children. Every child is a different shaped block of marble. Notice I didn't call them blockheads. They're not like their dads, all of them. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. But they're a different shaped rock. And so you have to take each child and you have to pray and diligently ask the Lord, Lord, how do I impress the gospel onto this child? Because it's going to look differently on this child than it is this child, isn't it? Our children are vastly different. And so painstakingly, painstaking care, and the sheer 
labor of such a task is daunting, isn't it? It's daunting. But once done, the message is there to stay. And that's what the Israelites are to do. Generation after generation, they were to painstakingly impress the gospel of their exodus from Egypt into the hearts of their children. But have no fear, parent, because we can do this daunting task because God says that He works powerfully within us, doesn't He? He takes our feeble etchings into our children's hearts, the the feeble scratchings on the surface, and He, through His Holy Spirit and His Word, begins to indelibly etch His Word into the hearts and lives of the children. And so we do it diligently. Think about this. What, what does it look like when somebody loves someone or something? You know, you've, you've all been around that person who started dating so-and-so. And all they can do is what? Talk about them all the time. Like, oh, here we go again, right? Or, or have you ever been around somebody who has a hobby they love? Oh, brother, here we go going to talk about his furball collection or something whatever it is hand planes how's that that's what i get animated about but when you love somebody or something you get creative don't you you and the same is true for our love of god we need to creatively think of ways to pass our love along to the next generation let me give you a third from this passage He goes on to say, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Make the gospel the center of your life. Now, what he is saying here is that there is a constant conversation of the Word of God from dawn to dark. And if you love God, you can't help but to talk about Him, can you? I I have some, some friends I love. And when I'm around those friends, it takes only a couple minutes before they're talking about the Lord. I love that kind of a person. Because I know they love the Lord because they can't help but to talk about the Lord, right? And so you talk about the Lord to your children in all aspects of life. And let me, let me mark, this, mark this down. Ready? What you love will come out of your mouth. What you love will come from your lips, and your children will know what you love, whether you tell them, I love X or not. They're going to know from the way you talk. But he says this, he says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be written, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And the Jews got this all wrong. The Israelites got this all wrong. You know what they did? The frontlets. They took the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And they took that, and they put it on a piece of paper, they put it in a box, and they tied it around the forehead in phylacteries. Legalism. And then, you've probably seen this one too. Have you ever seen Orthodox Jews wrap the leather wraps around their arms? Because he says here, you shall have them as a sign on your hand. And they, they have the Shema on their hand as well. So here and here, And they completely missed it. Because what God is saying here is that my word, my gospel, my glory ought to affect all the work of your hands. And all the thinking of your hearts and your minds. That's what he's talking about here. It's not some legalistic formula. He's not talking about family lectures. He's talking about the fact that everything that you do practically works out in the way or i'm sorry what you believe about god practically works out in the way that you live in the way that you work in the way that you think there's no family lectures hey sit down here kids we're going to learn x and then that's the only time you talk about it today it's a whole life situation the references to sit walk lie get up refer to routine concrete daily life Instruction in God's truth then is not a series of lectures and classes, but rather 
We are to impress truths about God by showing how God relates to daily concrete living. This is a call to be wise and thoughtful about the values and the virtues of the gospel and how they distinctively influence our decisions and our daily actions and our priorities. And I believe this. This is also free. First service, I didn't say this. But when you, discipleship is not sitting down in a class in A8 and hearing discipleship. Discipleship from one believer to another is life on life. So they can see how the gospel changes your day-to-day living. That's why we fellowship together. That's why we get together. So that, so the younger Christians can see how older Christians process the gospel and so on and so forth. Makes sense, doesn't it? Our children know what we love. They know what we desire. We, they know what we think is important. And let me tell you, parents, by our lives, we communicate either consciously or subconsciously, unconsciously, to our children what is important. Whether we realize or not, we communicate that to them. And so, think about it. If you encourage your children in temporal, worldly pursuits, but you never encourage them in the spiritual realm, you are not passing the gospel along. I agree. I agree completely. I read this in a book this week. Failure is being successful at things that don't matter. Failure is being successful at things that don't matter. Dear parent, are you inadvertently setting your child up for failure? Are you inadvertently setting your child up for failure? What do I mean by that? You set them up for failure when you teach them that a good job and great academics and notable sports careers and good connections are the pathway to success. And you never tell them how important it is that they understand and they know their God. And they know They know, they know what you think is important because if you get really excited, son, you keep those grades up. You can get a really good scholarship at a really good school. Hey, you know that job, I hear they make a lot of money in that job. Think about all these connections you're making. This is so good for for you. And I love what you're doing. And you get so excited about that. But they don't ever see you excited about the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified in spiritual truth. You have just inadvertently set your children up for failure because they know to succeed in things that are not important. When you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, He's not going to take out the paper and say, "Hmm, I see you worked at the Acme Corporation. You were the CEO. He doesn't care. We're to glorify God in these areas by doing our best But on Judgment Day, what he cares about is, did you glorify my name? That's it. Sum total. What are we communicating to our children? What are we we saying? Now you might think I'm exaggerating. You might think, Pastor, this is all hyperbole. No, it's not, because Jesus said, What is a prophet of man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? Parents, this is incredibly important that you love God with all of your being. And what excites you is Christian character in your children. Now, I'm not setting myself up as an example, but one of the things that we've always done with our children is, yes, we're proud of your pursuits. And we'll be proud of what you have done if you excel. But if you excel in these temporal areas and we find that you are not living for the Lord and God is not important to your life, then we will consider that a failure. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Does that sound harsh? It's absolutely true. 
And I want to show it to you from the scriptures. All right? We, we have one right now doing very well. I'm not going to say which one. And I just told him this week, I said, son, I am proud of you. But what I really want, and I am, I'm genuinely proud of him. But I said, what I want from you is that you keep your life right with the Lord in every situation. And you be an out there, visible testimony. And if you do that, I'll be so proud of you. Because you're living for the Lord. And that's so important. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Judges 2. Because I'm going to show you how critically as important it is, parents, that you do this. Judges chapter 2. Now, Deuteronomy 6, where we just were, was in the plains right before they came over into the promised land. Moses was at the end of his life. He was given this final sermon. It was part Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon. Aren't you glad I don't preach that long? His final sermon, Judges chapter 2, we're going to fast forward about 40 years. Joshua is, um, is about to die. They've conquered the promised land. And we come to Judges 2, and verse number 6, it says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Erez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Okay, so far so good. That's pretty good, isn't it? And then we read verse number 10. Look at verse number 10 with me. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. What a disaster. What a complete disaster. It didn't mean they didn't know the stories. They did not know the God of the stories. One generation... One generation, one generation who knew, who had experienced all the conquering greatness of the Lord, and they were, they were tasked with passing that along to their children, and they, they failed disastrously. It was a massive failure of those parents. In one generation, the gospel was lost. Seriously, one generation it was lost. Look at verse number 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. What are the Baals? The Baals are the gods of the culture. Now think with me about this massive, incredible failure. The saving acts of God were not precious to this new generation because the parents did not pass it along. They didn't rejoice in what God has done. In other words, they had forgotten the gospel, that they were uh, saved from slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land by the gracious, mighty acts of God. And as a result of that forgetting, of not acting upon what they knew to be true, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So they went straight to evil. And what else did they do? They served the Baals. Now the word Baal is a Canaanite word for Lord. So, so the new generation forgot all about the Lord and served all these many lords. It happened in one, one generation, people. One generation. This is the greatest failure that a generation can make. What does it say? Their parents served the Lord, their children served the Baals, the gods of the culture. And it can happen now. Your children can sit in church and they can hear all the Bible stories and your faith not get passed to them and they're going to do evil in the sight of the God and they're going to follow the gods of this culture. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, whatever you want to call it, material, money, materialism, uh, fame, fortune, and all that sort of stuff, and they'll follow those gods. 
Judges 2 is by no means the last or the only time this has ever happened. It's happened here. Let me give you an example. When in the colonial era in New England, when the, the Puritans came over, the pilgrims came over, from, from 1620 to 1640, uh, nearly all the first settlers of New England were vital biblical Christians. But listen to this. By 1662, that first generation realized that many of their children and grandchildren were only nominal believers. Nominal means Christian in name only. They had to institute what's called the halfway covenant. Some of you know what that is, right? You've heard of the halfway covenant? Allowing people to vote who were only baptized as infants, but who as adults were not church members. And, and people, that, that happened to the Puritans, the pilgrims that came over here. Most Christians rely upon institutions and formal instruction to pass the faith. We think, listen, we think that if we instruct our children in true doctrine, shelter them from immoral behavior, and involve them in church and religious organizations, then we have done all that we can do. And that is so dead wrong. Youth are turned off not only by bad examples, by, but by parents who are not open about their own spiritual lives. Do your parents see you praying? Do your parents see you reading the Bible? Do your parents, I'm not saying parents, I mean children. You know what I mean. Parents do your children. Do your children see how important God's word is to you? Do you talk about it? Because if you don't, they figured out real fast, mom and dad don't actually believe what they say they believe. They believe something different. And they turn from that. It happens that quickly. Judges 2. We're not told exactly what the first generation of believers did with their children, but chapter 2, verse number 10 is key, however, because the next generation didn't know the Lord relationally and personally. And this is the very outcome that Deuteronomy 6 was written to avoid. Deuteronomy 6 was not a technique that guarantees someone's children will be believers because their own wills and choices play a, a large role in it. Your, your children's do. However, listen, and this is important, when a whole generation turns away, somehow parents have failed to model real faith and disciple their children. Now you might be sitting here saying, Jared, you know, this is a, this is a real downer. <laughs> but I'm going to be honest with you. This is extremely important. It's critically important. We, we live in a culture that is ripping the Christian faith apart in children's lives. We live in a culture that's ripping Christian values away from everything, and they are trying everything they can to destroy Christian faith, to destroy your family, and to destroy your children's lives. Now, they don't come out and say they're going to destroy it, but they destroy it by, allow, by teaching your children to take on their values instead of Christian values, instead of ser serving the Lord. And so it is, it is important that we pass our faith to our children because if we don't pass our faith to our children, they won't know God and they will serve the idols of our culture, money and possessions and positions and pleasure and, and, and everything else. Do we need to be fearful? No, don't be fearful. We need to be diligent, don't we? I want to remind you once again, well, I'll remind you, I'll say this first. You are probably pretty much a failure when it comes to consistency in training your children. All of us are because we're human. But here's the wonderful promise. God works powerfully through your life in His Word. Doesn't He? And He takes our meager efforts and He, with His infinite power, indelibly impresses that upon the lives of children. Now, it starts with parents loving God with all their heart. I want to ask you one more time. Do you love God with all your heart? I'm going to say one more part here, and that is this. The church has a big part to play in that. Let's, let's think about this for just a minute. How can the church help parents train their children in Christ's likeness? Well, let's think through Scripture truth, and this will help us think through how we do this. If, 
the, the greatest way, method of your evangelism, the greatest um, priority in your evangelism is to love God with all your heart, soul, and might, then our church should be the kind of church that says to the young mothers and to the young fathers, you know what? It is our priority that you're here. And you're in Sunday school and you're not out in the nursery and teaching Sunday school. How do you like that? So in other words, we need to be the kind of church where the older members, and I'm talking about myself, where the older members do not check out. Say, you know, I've done my time. No, you haven't. If you love the next generation and you really believe that God's glory is bound up in the salvation of souls, then you will be the kind of person who will say, you know what? I'll serve in the nursery. I'll serve in the children's ministry. I'll do whatever I can to make sure that parents are being fed the Word of God so it fuels the fire of their love for God. We can help there, can't we? We can also help by making sure that our children's ministries have robust Bible teaching. Even catechizing the children and teaching them to love God with all their heart, souls, and might. I, I, I haven't talked about it much, but uh, that, that's one of our priorities. And I'll tell you what, when I came here, I could tell that was a priority. When Heather and I came here to, to candidate, we could tell that, that Pastor Howie Holmes, that was a burden on his heart. And that was a burden on the elders' hearts. You could see the, the importance of children in every aspect of this church. And I think it needs, it has to continue, doesn't it? And, and I loved that Howie loved the children. And we, we love our children. And so we're going to do that. Um, we have so many children. I haven't said much about this, but we're working right now behind the scenes on plans for an expansion uh, back in the gymnasium area so that we can have larger capacity for children. Because you know what I'm praying? I'm praying that God keeps bringing children to Providence Bible Church. And I'll tell you, I, I see these children out here. I see these teenagers. And I'm going to say, I prayed for every single one of them by name this week parents and I, this is what i prayed you know what i prayed number one that they they trust christ as their savior that's first and foremost i pray number two that god will call them out to serve the lord and you know what i pray number three i pray for the parents that the parents will visibly show their love for god in front of their children so that, that gospel is not only heard but it's understood and accepted in their own lives. Huh. There's nothing more important than that, is there? If God called us to spread His glory through the whole world, then the way that we do that, the most natural way that we do it, is to spread His glory through our children and seeing them come to Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that Providence Bible Church is a church that prioritizes children. Now, I didn't say children-centric. We're not going to have a big clown up here on Sunday mornings for our kids or anything like that. Well, you got a clown up here, but you know what I'm saying. Okay. Because I know somebody's going to say that. I had to say that. So I took the thunder. But you know what I'm saying? The children are a priority. Teenagers are a priority. I, I love kids and teenagers. And we all have to. How can we help our church spread God's glory to another generation? Lord, I thank you for the promises of Scripture. Oh, this is such a huge task. There is no way that we can do this on our own. But you have given us your Holy Spirit, and you take our meager efforts, our weakness, and you take your infinite awesome power and you work in children's lives and teenagers lives and lord as i pray every single day i i ask that you right now will be working in children's hearts and teenagers hearts those that don't know you to bring them to jesus christ that they you will open their hearts and their minds to see the glory 
of the gospel and to see the magnitude of their sin against a holy, infinite God and that they will turn to Christ in salvation. I pray for our children, Lord, then that their parents will train them life on life, that they'll see real Christian faith being lived out in the home and they will go out and live that Christian faith as well in, in a new generation of believers who are, are actively participating in their churches and also going out to the mission fields and going out into pastoral ministry and going out in all areas of church life and gospel ministry. And Lord, I pray that you'll glorify yourself in, in bringing children to Providence Bible Church, not because we want to be a big church, but because we want to have God glorified and honored and magnified through the ministry and the salvation of the souls of our children. Lord, we admit this is a huge, impossible task for us to accomplish, except through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Fill us with the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, we need it. And I pray right now, today, if you have spoken to somebody's heart, a parent's heart, a grandparent's heart, and they realize, yes, I have an idol in my heart, or yes, I, I, don't, I don't love God quite the way I should. I pray that today they will not only decide to love God with all their heart, but they will act upon that and put away all those things that are not God from their life and make Him the center of their lives. Oh, Lord, I thank You that You give us this privilege, that You, you reward us for this as well. My heart is just so full from, from how good you are. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I just want to encourage parents. Man, I, I tell you, um, it can, it's a daunting task. Young mothers, you wake up every morning, you're thinking, how do I have the strength to go on with all these young children, right? Dads, you come home. I pray for the mothers and I pray for the dads that when you come home, you, you find the strength in your heart to decide that you're going to put the effort into training your children. Because, man, it's hard when you come home. You've been working hard all day, isn't it? And you just need a little bit of time to relax. I understand that. And let me say something else, too. I want to try to encourage you. Sometimes you go through times when your kids just, it feels like they're just ripping your heart out when they're at the home. And, and we've, we've experienced that. All three of our kids, as far as we know right now, are serving the Lord. And I hope that continues. But there was a time in my previous church, I tendered my resignation when one of our children was going through a, a rough patch. But Heather and I knew we can't change their heart. Only God can change their heart. And all we could do, we lived the gospel in front of them. We prayed many many nights that God would change their heart because he's the only one that could. And guess what? He did. Praise the Lord. And I, I want to, I'm saying this because I, I've, in the last couple of years, I've talked to parents and your children, maybe even sitting here in the sanctuary, are ripping your hearts out right now. I just want to encourage you, be faithful, pray, and keep the gospel, and just keep just keep loving God and loving your children and do the best you can. You cannot change their heart. God changes hearts. And he's so much more powerful than we are. And you'll be able to stand up one day to a new generation and tell them the exact same story. Amen? Well, speaking of children, out to the left in the narthex, sign-up sheets for uh, VBS and for the Backyard Bible Clubs. If you haven't signed up, today's the last day to sign up. I don't know if Rachel Markham's here or not. It doesn't matter. Uh, she has been working so hard on this. She's an incredibly creative person and diligent, and I appreciate all the work that she's done. She asks that if you are willing to work, that you'll sign up out there, drop it in the box. Today is the last day. In just a little over a month, VBS will be going on. It's coming up real fast. So, so if you could help her out. And that's one of the ways, by the way, we train the next generation, isn't it? And let me say one more thing. Um, Mark your calendars for June 11th through the 13th. We'll be having, the elders have a past, youth pastor candidate in mind, student pastor is what we're calling him, and he and his family will be coming in that, that second week of June, 
And so make sure that you're here so you meet him. We'll be saying more as time goes along. We want the kids to meet him and that sort of thing. But that's happening June 11th through the 13th that weekend. So uh, just wanted to let you know that's where we are in that process. And then if you see Rachel, if you see Christy, she's, she was working in the background. Even Sherry, who works in uh, the nursery scheduling, thank them for the work, if you will. And, I, and let's pray. And I hope mothers have a happy Mother's Day. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and how powerful it is. And I, even though I don't know specific names right now, I do know some. I know some mothers and some fathers who have talked to me and, and emailed me and texted me, and their child is just ripping their heart out right now. And it's, it causes distress. And I pray for them. Because I've been there. Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen their hearts, that you'll strengthen their confidence in who you are, and that they will just live and do the best they can and faithfully trust that you will do your mighty work. Lord, I pray that as we go from here, that we'll be able to go with joy, determined to please you. And I pray for um, us to have a, a good Mother's Day honoring and glorifying God in Christ's name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.